Amen, amen, amen. All right, awesome. You can take your seats out there in the world. Uh, we are still in the book of Colossians here on Wednesday nights. Um, so uh, last I preached last week, so I'm preaching this week too, and it's kind of a continuation of what we had gone through last week. Um, these are the next section of verses, so um, let's just open up in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray that you speak uh, what we need to hear, Lord God, what's going to correct us, what's going to change us, Lord Jesus, in your word. I know it's alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, Lord, and so I pray you just uh, work within us, Lord God, to change us by your holy word and your holy spirit. In your holy name, Lord. Amen. Amen. So let's look in book of Colossians chapter 2. We're going to go from 18 to 23. Why are you doing that is the title of the sermon tonight. So Colossians chapter 2, 18 through 23 says this. It says, don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels saying uh, they have had visions about these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body. For he who holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. You have died with Christ, and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep following the rules of the world, such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are made, uh, made, uh, such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. These rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion and pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline, but these provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. Gosh, I mean, right off the bat, right? I mean, <laughs> why would you do all that stuff if it's not going to help you conquer uh, your evil desires. So let's find out. Why are you doing that? Number one, why are you insisting on pious self-denial? Colossians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Don't let anyone condemn you by insisting on pious self-denial or the worship of angels, saying they have uh, had visions of these things. Their sinful minds have made them proud, and they are not connected to Christ, the head of the body, for he holds the whole body together with its joints and ligaments, and it grows as God nourishes it. The real issue here is pride and false humility. The motives of their actions have become disconnected from Jesus Christ and from their brothers and sisters in Christ. It's really interesting because... Um, there's something I think is is pretty common in society that that we can sometimes overlook, and that's false humility. That's when people try to act like they're being humble, but really they're intentionally positioning themselves to get the glory in a particular situation. Uh, another phrase that I, I use and any uh, good Marine uses is uh, false motivation. <laughs> and that's where you pretend to be really excited and motivated about the worst possible tasks that you've been given by drill instructors or sergeants or whoever else. You're like, false motivation. So there's this Marine I work uh, He's a, He was a Marine uh, I work with in the fire department. 
And he's always comes in. He's like so excited to be here. And I don't do anything I don't want to do, which is basically a way of saying I, I'll, I'll do anything and convince myself that I'm excited about it. And so I'm always like, yeah, that's some false moto right there, isn't it? He's like, no, no way, devil dog. That's not false moto. But I remember when I was in the Marine Corps, um, there's a lot of discipline. Um, grooming standards are very, are, are very uh, tight and orderly. And so... Uh, you, you know, I, you know, I get, you know, you get your haircut once a week at, at, uh, at least, um, before every parade or function, you'd get your haircut. Um, and you'd always, every, every night I was ironing my uniform. And so, but what would happen is, is you would start off with this trying to, uh, uh, be disciplined and trying to uh, make the Marine Corps look good because you were so squared away. But then what you started to notice was it became a competition between Marines about who could be the most squared away and the most disciplined. So you would have guys cutting their hair every day. So they could have the most fresh, tight haircut in the morning at formation. Uh, I knew guys who would go back at lunch and shave again and iron their uniform again and then not wear their seatbelt on the way back to work because they don't want to wrinkle their uniform. And so it, you, you'd show up to formation and, and they just kind of quietly walk, chest out, you know, and, you know, uh, almost parading about but trying to pretend like they're being humble and that they're just, you know, we're all just together, one brotherhood. Really, you're like, you're showing off right now. Because it's clear that you went home and basically got ready for the entire day again, just to come back for the afternoon. It became all about the attention. It was no longer attention to detail, it was attention to the person. Uh, we had lost sight of the standard. We had lost sight of what we were doing it for. Instead of honoring the Marine Corps, we were trying to use it to honor ourselves. And all that really did was just create separation and not unity. Because instead of trying to lift your brother or sister up, you're trying to set yourself apart to look better than them. And when we see uh, in these first verses... And talk about uh, pious uh, uh, self-denial and those kind of things. And then it says not connected to Christ uh, or the body. It's that same kind of mentality or that same kind of thing where you're performing these above and beyond rituals. Pretending like it's for God's glory. But really you need everybody to see you. And all it does is try to separate you and, and bring this uh, um, uh, fracture and everything to the body of Christ. And it's not making you look better in Christ's eyes either. So it's it's not good at all. Pride and false humility though. Are, are symptoms of being legalistic in your mind. Now the term legalistic when it comes to Christianity. I think most people or at least my generation. Probably think of Ned Flanders on the Simpsons. And he you know he would always say you know oodly oodly you know whatever. And you know no cursing and uh, no watching you know R rated movies and things like that. But that is just essentially a shadow of the concept of trying to be legalistic in how you practice your life. Uh, it's really much more insidious than that when you look at it. A legalist behaves as if they can earn God's favor through personal performance. And we talked about that a little bit last week, the idea that Christ is all sufficient. You can't earn his favor by trying to do better things. 
Uh, C.J. Mahaney put it like this. He says, legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. See, the subtle implication in this is that the death of Jesus on the cross wasn't enough. And more is needed or required for salvation or to merit God's grace. When you decide that legalistically there's all these rules you have to follow in order to uh, be, I guess, in better standing with God. You're basically saying that Jesus' death on the cross wasn't enough to forgive you. That you have to add more to it. And that's not a good thing. Thomas Schreiner writes, Legalism has its origins in self-worship. If people are justified through their obedience to the law, then they merit praise, honor, and glory. Legalism, in other words, means that the glory goes to the people rather than to God. Now, I don't think any Christian would ever openly say that the cross was not enough. But by living a legalistic life, you secretly shift your focus away from the cross and over to what you can do to accomplish things on your own strength. And that's where that false humility comes in because a lot of people will be like, oh, praise God, give him the glory, give him the glory, as I brag about all my accomplishments on Facebook. When really, you're looking at it like, who are you bringing glory to um, when you're doing that? You know, and, and that's where we talk about last week too. We talk about this week too. We're talking about motives and heart condition. And why are you doing the things that are you doing? And who's supposed to get the glory when you're doing them? Now, are you the type of Christian who puts God first and asks questions like, how can I fulfill his desires? Or are you the type of Christian that puts yourself first and asks, how can he fulfill my desires? This is a question that's going to expose exactly how you view this Christian life and how you view God's saving grace. Who's it for? Why are you doing what you're doing? Galatians chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 21 says this, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there would be no need for Christ to die. Number two. Why are you following the rules of this world? Colossians chapter 2 verses 20 through 22. You have died with Christ and he has set you free from the spiritual powers of this world. So why do you keep following the rules of this world such as don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? Such rules are mere human teachings about things that deteriorate as we use them. So don't let anyone condemn you. Because Christ is all sufficient. When he's talking about things like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, that's again talking about spiritual rituals that uh, mostly the Jews, but I believe the pagan Gentiles, bring into their relationship with Christ, saying that this used to be the rule. And so now, even though Christ was all sufficient, even though he forgave all my sins, even though there's nothing that I can do to earn more favor or merit from God, I still think everybody needs to follow these conditions and these rules because they sure make us look a lot more holy and pious. And that's not a good thing. In First Peter chapter, well, I think this, is this Second Peter chapter 1 verses 3 and 4? By his divine power, God has given us is that first Peter or second Peter? Second Peter. Second Peter one verses three and four. 
By his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us a great and precious promise. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desire. Man's rules and the culture's expectations can't make you more holy or make God love you anymore. It just can't. Um, you know, I think some in, in areas of society, especially within the church, um, I think we see a lot of these uh, different expectations and in church denominations. Um, there's a different expectation of of what church should look like or how you should look like in church or or what a Christian should be like. I don't know if you've ever heard that uh, in your life where people would say, well, a Christian should do these things or uh, if you were a real Christian, you would you know, whatever, X, Y, Z. Interestingly enough, a lot of times those things come from uh, non-believers. So it's interesting to me how much a non-believer knows about what a Christian should be or shouldn't be. Um, but, but what's interesting too is, as much as uh, life in Christ should be a big family and a brotherhood, um, very few families have I seen try to undercut and shame each other more than sometimes you will see in the Christian church in America. Um, some of these rules may look something like um, you have to wear a suit to church. Uh, your church clothes, that's a big divider in our culture. Now, in the Northwest where we're at right now, uh, those kind of rules are pretty much out the window. I mean, I may be too dressed up to go to some churches in this area. Because honestly, when you completely lack uh, a level of um, discipline and spirituality in your culture, it really does just become about the heart condition more than it becomes the exterior, uh, 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 the view of what you look like on the exterior. Um, but nonetheless, you can have just as much uh, piety and self-grandizing in a church where the pastor wears uh, fancy jeans and a t-shirt and trying to shame that person who wants to wear a suit or a long dress or put their hair up or no makeup or anything else. There's all these lines that we draw about who should do what. And then we try to shame each other into uh, not doing what they do because that makes us look better for what we're doing. It's, it's, uh, it's really too common. Um, political views. Um, political views are something that really, in, I would say, infect the church. Um, it's, it's really actually, uh, I guess sad to me to see sometimes how much political views affect whether people decide whether you're a good Christian or not a good Christian or a real Christian or not a real Christian, depending on who you vote for or what policies that you accept. Um, there's, there's really very little politics in the whole entire Bible and you won't find anything related to politics in terms of God's sacrifice for you and your salvation. So it's probably an issue we shouldn't pay as much, uh, creates as much division over it. Sometimes you could be a church that gives too much grace. You give it away too easily. People are going to think they can do whatever they want. Sometimes you're a church that demands uh, too much works. 
You're relying too heavily on your ability to be uh, disciplined and and self-controlled. You know, you need to just loosen up because grace is what what's important. We even defi- divide over that as if somehow you can't be 100% saved by grace and 100% obedient to the text and what Jesus asked you to do at the same time. But those are the kind of things that we create division over. Um, because we're really, we're, we're living in a self-help type society. Advertisers convince us that we, if we eat the right thing or buy their product or do this one thing every day, that somehow, uh, we could be, have complete lives and be happy. And I, so it's really no surprise to me sometimes when we see this kind of stuff, uh, infect the church culture because that is what we're berated with day after day. Messages constantly about how, uh, you know, from advertisers and politicians and everybody else about how you are the most important thing that there is and everything revolves around you and everything we have is to make your life better. It really isn't surprising when people come to a, a relationship with, with Jesus and they start asking themselves, okay, Jesus, now what can you do for me? In fact, um, I had a conversation at work, it's probably about 10 years ago now, where um, this other firefighter was, he was trying to make some moves in his life. I think there was some uh, trouble in his marriage. He was, he was unhappy with the way things were going. So he wanted to try if few things. And so, um, he was telling me that he was going to give this Jesus thing a try because, uh, because, you know, he sees it, it's effective in some people's lives. So it's on the list of things to try. Um, so he was telling me how he was going to go to this church and see what, uh, see what, uh, Christianity, what Jesus could do for him. Um, and that's the thing. I mean, that's what we're dealing with, right? And and so sometimes, even uh, in a sneaky way, we're, we could be sitting in church with that same idea. I'm here today because I'm waiting to see what Jesus is going to do for me, rather than how we could uh, um, please him. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 3 says this, How foolish can you be? After starting, a new life, uh, after starting your new lives in the Spirit, uh, why are you now trying to become part? I'm sorry. How foolish can you be? After starting your new lives in the Spirit, why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human efforts? You died to Christ, so why do we keep trying to follow man's rules? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God, uh, God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Don't try to copy what this world's doing. Get transformed into a new person through Jesus Christ that makes you think differently. Then you will know God's will for your life. So if, if you're out there right now and you're saying uh, that you don't you don't know what God has for you, you don't know what his will for you is, and you're still trying to search and figure it out and read some different books and all sorts of things, I would say what the Bible says is stop trying to do all of those things in the self-help section of, you know, the Amazon bookstore and let God transform your mind. And then you will know what his perfect will is for you. My third point is this. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? Colossians chapter 2 verse 23. These rules may seem wise, these rules may seem wise because they require strong devotion, pious self-denial, and serve, uh, severe bodily discipline, but they provide no help in conquering a person's evil desires. 
You know, I think of, uh, oftentimes I think about why am I doing what I'm doing? And, and a lot of times I want to make my decisions outcome based. I, I start at the end it, with the end in mind. I say, what's the outcome I'm looking for and what decisions do I have to make to get to that outcome? Uh, oftentimes for me, cause I'm highly relational in my leadership style and my approach. Um, oftentimes for me, the end goal is salvaging the relationship. It's, it's being able to move that, uh, that relationship forward, uh, have them buy into the direction we're headed as a group. Uh, so often in, uh, well, in a paramilitary organization like the fire department or even in the Marine Corps, um, some people's idea of leadership is you are the one who holds the hammer. And if anybody doesn't do what you say, you just whack them with the hammer. Um, but the reality of leadership is, is that you can use your positional power to whack somebody back into alignment, but you only get one shot at that because after that you've lost them forever. They will never respect you again. They will only do the bare minimum of what they have to do. So my end goal is typically something like uh, an outcome where they want to follow me again, where they respect me still, and they're doing things that they want to do that just happen to be the same thing that we're all trying to do together. So when you look at that, I'm saying you have to ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing. And if uh, doing these strong devotional things and self-denial and severe bodily discipline aren't helping you conquer the evil desires and sin in your life, why are we doing them? Um, you know, we used to do the Daniel fast uh, at, here at church every year. We did it for many, many years, the Daniel fast. And so... The Daniel fast is basically, it's like, uh, withholding food. It's, it's basically like things like vegetables, whole grains, um, things like that. Just kind of normal baseline healthy foods, not, no animal products or fats or carbonated sodas or fried food or none of that. So basically like being a really clean vegan for three weeks. Um, which, so it's surprisingly torturous for quite a few people. Um, and now, me being a vegan aside, it does surprise me how committed people are to um, eating meat and how they can't picture a world where they can't eat meat. It's kind of like, uh, out of all the tortures of the world, not having bacon doesn't rank in the top uh, in my life. There's a lot of worse things than taking a break for three weeks from eating bacon. But I... Uh, I always wanted to make it even harder because the reality is, is the harder you make it, the more you're going to honor God, right? So I wanted to make it the most difficult thing possible so I could really show God that I'm trying to honor him. So instead of just doing what he asked me to do and making him the focus, I wanted to make it even harder and make myself the focus. So I'd always try to start the Daniel fast off with a three day water only fast. And I think... Pretty much every year I failed the Daniel fast. I didn't make it the whole 21 days uh, doing what I was supposed to do. Now I spent several of those days trying to do quite a bit more than I was expected to do, uh, which in turn pretty much sunk my chances of doing what I was supposed to do. But the reality at the end of the day is, is that the reason why we're not doing the Daniel fast anymore is because it, for, for most people, for everyone that, you know, you saw on social media or you talked to, it was so much more about avoiding the hardship and, and technically fitting within the rules, but yet making it as comfortable as possible that it just lost all value. 
It's like, why are we even doing this fast? If people aren't truly fasting to grow closer to God, to create sacrifice in themselves so they can cry out to God for comfort, then why are we even doing it? If it's, if it's all just about finding the right kind of chips or the right recipes, or if you put enough of this seasoning in it, you can't even taste the, you know, can't even taste the vegetables. I found this bacon salt that's vegan, so it probably fits into the Daniel fast. So every vegetable I eat tastes like bacon. That is, that is the idea of pious self-denial and severe bodily discipline, but having no value in conquering the sins of your life. I mean, in all honesty, my heart saw this as a way to lose some winter weight. It's like, I can't wait for us to do the Daniel fast in January. So I'm going to eat as much cheesecake as I can in the three weeks before. I'm going to lose all that weight anyway, eating nothing but vegetables. But that's the wrong heart condition. No wonder I always failed. Because I was doing it all for the wrong reasons. And I would imagine that a lot of people failed probably for a similar reason. Because instead of pressing into Jesus, we're looking for workarounds. And if we live our Christian life like that, looking for workarounds, instead of pressing into what what the Lord has for us and what the Lord requires of us, we're never going to be successful and we're never going to overcome our own sins. You can't rely on your own strength. In the long run, that's not going to get you very far. Galatians chapter 5 verse 16. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Let the Holy Spirit guide your life. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Um, many people over the years have told me that they, they want to be a pastor or that they've called to be a, been called to be a pastor. Um, and like, I'm not trying to belittle it. Like, honestly, um, who am I to judge? Like, I, I'm not the decider. I don't, I don't decide who gets to be a pastor and who doesn't get to be a pastor. I mean, uh, if God's called you to be a pastor, he's called you to be a pastor. And so usually I, uh, I say, hey, that's awesome. What a blessing. What a high calling. That's exciting. What, what are your next steps? And most of the time they don't know. Um, sometimes they kind of angle for like, well, um, do you think I could preach one Wednesday? Like, no, that's not going to happen. But I do have this cleaning cart. If you want to clean the bathrooms out Wednesday night, we could start with that podium. Um, but, but sometimes I think that the idea of being a pastor and wanting to pursue that life is really one of, uh, uh, the idea of comfort and convenience. Because, so you go to work all day. And you don't like your job and you're exhausted at the end of the day. You got about enough energy left to give your family some time and energy. And then you're just tapped. You don't want to do anything else. Well, this Christian life is hard. It takes a lot of energy and effort. I mean, you have to study your Bibles. You have to know what God's word says. You have to be in prayer. You have to be in his presence. You have to do all these things. But when are you going to do all those things? You have to go to work. You have to be with your family. It's a lot of work. So what if the workaround was... You could get paid to be a professional Christian. So you get paid and your job is to study the Bible. Your job is to be in prayer and find out what God wants. Your job is to fellowship with other believers. And your job is to stand up here on stage and have everybody just adore you and and shower you with applause and laughs. And they laugh at every one of your jokes and they say, great job, pastor. Why wouldn't you want that job? It sounds great. But the reality is that's not what the job is like. 
That's, that's not what you're getting into. I mean, if your idea of being a pastor is, uh, is, uh, making sacrifices and, um, laying your life down for, for Christ and for, uh, for his children to make them stronger believers and send them out, then that's great. But if, if your whole goal in wanting to be a pastor is to feed two birds with one scone, then that's not, what getting you any further along that's not do you know that's pious self-denial that just ends up in selfish shortcuts that's not the reason why you want to do that and you should ask yourself why would i want that and do i want it for my glory or do i want it for god's glory because following the rules will not help you overcome sin but the holy spirit will first corinthians chapter 10 Verses 12 and 13. If you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. Pride comes before the fall. And oh man, I wish I could tell you the times that I've seen it. Because it would be such a good illustration for you. It's such a cautionary tale. But the reality is when you get so puffed up and prideful in your own holiness, that is when you are ripe to take a drastic crash into the ground. So even even here, it, Paul reminds you, when you think you are standing strong, be careful not to fall. The temptations in your life are no different from what others experience. And God is faithful. He will not allow the temptation to be more than you can stand. When you are tempted, he will show you a way out that you can endure. A common misquote in the Bible is that God will not give you more than you can handle. Um, that is absolutely false. And quite frequently, God is giving you more than you can handle. Because otherwise, why would you ever need to rely on God if everything was within your ability to handle it? But what the Bible does say is that you will not be tempted more than you can bear. Your temptations to sin are no different than anybody else's. And... They will not be more than you can bear, and he will always give you a way out. Now, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but I know that if I look at all the big decisions of sin in my life, all those opportunities I had to make poor, unchristlike, bad decisions, there was always a way out that I didn't take. And and I, I would challenge you to reflect on those situations in your life and look and see. Where the point was where you intentionally turned left when you should have turned right. Because the Bible says that he always gives us a way out. James chapter 4 verse 7 says, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Uh, the very important part of this verse is the humble yourself before God part. That's the foundation for how you're going to resist the devil and have him flee. If you're not humbled before God, you will not be able to resist the devil. That is the key to James 4, 7. And Romans 8, uh, 8, 11 says, The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. This is basically saying that the same Holy Spirit that could raise Jesus from the dead is inside of you. So when you feel like you are powerless against sin, I'm telling you the Holy Spirit is inside of you that's strong enough to raise people from the dead. It can certainly spiritually raise you to a level of new life that you can take that road uh, out of sin when it's presented to you. You can't say that you are weak when the Holy Spirit is within you. You are spiritually strong enough to make those choices if you would commit to make them. 
Because the issue here is motives and understanding the concept of saved by grace. If, if you're confused about what your own motives are, or that you're confused about what it means to be saved by grace, that is the problem. Let's look at this um, last section of scripture here. Romans chapter 3 verses 19 through 24 says this. Obviously, the law applies to those whom it was given for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. But now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. And as was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when he freed us from the penalty of sin. Why do you do the things you do? The reason why you do the things you do is should be out of a sense of uh, grace-motivated obedience. You're obedient to the word of God because of the grace that was showered on you. Because of God's grace, you are motivated to obey what the Bible says. The last verse here is 2 Timothy 2.11. This is a trustworthy saying. If we die with him, we will also live with him. Tonight, if you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to let you know uh, that tonight is your night. And I want you to pray with me tonight, if that's you. Uh, if you want to turn away from your old life and pick up a new life with Jesus Christ, just like it says in those verses in, the verses in Romans, we are made right by God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who you are. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short. We need forgiveness. Christ is that last final sacrifice that is the only forgiveness for our sins. And we need to accept him as our Lord and Savior. So if that's you tonight and you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior tonight, for the first night ever in your life, you're going to make this change and make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Pray with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I love you so much. Lord God, forgive me of all my sins. Holy Spirit, fill me right now. Lord God, I want to live for you, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that prayer tonight and you want to make Jesus your Lord and Savior and, and you and you prayed that tonight, you confessed your sins, you're going to live for him, then I want you to just drop us a line, send us a message uh, so we know, so we can be in prayer with you. When the doors open up here again, please come, be part of the church family, uh, join us together um, so we can just continue to grow in our love for Christ and um, just in the grace that he provides us. Uh, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord God, for your word. Love you so much, Jesus. You are the reason why we're here, Lord God. Let us never forget um, that you are all sufficient for our entire lives and everything we could ever need or want. We just love you so much in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Remember, church on Sunday, thank you for being here on this Wednesday. Um, have a great night.